This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clotin. Here's what's coming up. In every tenure of a foreign of a Chinese foreign minister, which is 10 years, an incumbent foreign minister will make no less than 50 visits to Africa. That is the highest rate of African visits than any other country. That was Paul Nantulia at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies here in Washington, talking about China's diplomatic outreach in Africa. Details coming up. Also in South Africa, there are concerns about the government's plan to send more troops to the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And we hear from a young graduate struggling to find employment in Eswatini. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Two South African soldiers were killed and three injured when a mortar landed in their base in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The South African National Defense Force said it thinks the mortar yesterday was a result of indirect fire and an investigation was underway to determine who was responsible. The incident comes as Pretoria is sending about 3,000 additional soldiers to fight M23 rebels in the DRC. But some military experts warn the troops are not prepared to take on one of the continent's most potent insurgent groups, Daring Taylor reports. With large deposits of diamonds, gold, copper and coltan, the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the most mineral-rich regions on Earth. That wealth also contributes to making it one of the most volatile. The Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., says six million people there have died in conflict since the first Congo war began in 1996. The same ethnic tension that ignited the 1994 Rwandan genocide, during which Hutu extremists killed an estimated one million Tutsis, is present in eastern DRC. The M23 formed in 2012, saying it would defend Tutsis living in DRC against Hutu militias and remains locked in war against the central government in Kinshasa. Human rights organizations say M23 rebels have massacred and tortured civilians, burned villages and crops, and raped women and girls. They also say DRC forces have committed similar atrocities. Now, with the United Nations withdrawing peacekeeping troops this year, South Africa is stepping into the breach. Quibus Mare, a South African opposition member of parliament and a former army general, says it's difficult to judge what's motivating this. Remember, this is basically a conflict between neighbours. Why South Africa? We are not one of the neighbouring countries. We are not in the Eastern African community bloc. How will we fund this? We have struggled to maintain our aircraft and our equipment and the logistical support to those soldiers. We know the dilapidated state of the Defence Force, so two billion... The M23 is one of the largest of more than 100 rebel groups operating in eastern DRC. In recent weeks, its forces have been attacking within about 40 kilometres of the city of Goma, the capital of North Kivu province. Pretoria says its troops will be in DRC until at least mid-December, at a cost of more than $100 million. The expenditure has caused the public outcry, 
because state-owned corporations are blaming budget cuts for not being able to deliver basic services, including water and electricity. Stellenbosch University defense expert Thomas Mandarup says it's likely the South African soldiers will fight in DRC with what he called shoddy weapons and equipment. There's a big backlog of maintenance, which costs a lot of money, and it takes time. You cannot just give extra money and then suddenly all the equipment will work. We look at the ability of logistical strategic transport. It's very, very limited because the number of C-130s uh, transport aircraft is not enough. This is going to be an issue. And we saw it back when the South African troops were caught in a disastrous operation in Central African Republic, probably known as the Battle of Bangui, where South Africa lost 17 soldiers were killed and a lot of wounded. And they fought at, uh, South African government officials told VOA they're confident the country's soldiers are well prepared to fight the M23. But Mandarup says it's a conflict they should not be facing especially because he sees no evidence of South Africa being capable of extracting its troops should they become overwhelmed. Pretoria says sending troops to eastern DRC is part of its commitment to bring peace to African war zones. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The U.S. State Department Global Engagement Center is exposing Russia's intelligence services for providing material support and guidance to Moscow's African Initiative, a new information agency focused on Africa-Russia relations that has spread disinformation regarding the United States and European countries. According to the Global Engagement Center, the African Initiative recruits African journalists, bloggers, and members of local populations to support the organization's work of boasting Russia's image and denigrating that of other countries. For more on Russia's disinformation, viewers Esther Githui Ewart spoke to James Rubin, the Special Envoy and Coordinator for the U.S. Department of State's Global Engagement Center. Now, what do you suppose Russia is trying to achieve in Africa by denigrating the United States and European countries? Well, it's hard to get inside the head of the Kremlin when it conducts this kind of information warfare. But if I were to uh, imagine their objectives, I think it's a frustration for uh, Russia that the United States, uh, over the last 20 years, as Secretary Blinken said during his trip to Africa, had spent something like a hundred million, sorry, a hundred billion dollars in health initiatives that have really uh, been probably the most successful programs in, in history in the health area the PEPFAR program and others like it, that have saved countless lives for Africans. And the Russians probably uh, find that frustrating, uh, that American health uh, support is so dramatically successful, and they're trying to challenge it and make people question it, even though independent experts know that it's been uh, so successful. Mr. Rubin, the health uh, initiatives in Africa that the U.S. and other you know, Western countries have uh, been spearheading there are very critical for the continent. We know what happened during COVID-19 and other epidemics. Uh, what kind of propaganda is Russia spreading about that? What do they want to see happen to the health sector in the continent? Well, this is what's really so uh, dastardly about what the Russians are doing. Um, normally, the Russian government and the United States have geopolitical debates about uh, the Ukraine war or about, uh, you know, uh, policies in Europe. But in this case, the Russian government, through its intelligence services, 
are really responsible directly for killing African. Think about it. By deterring African uh, citizens and, uh, and governments from uh, using Western health services, African people, men, women, and children, might not go to the facilities where uh, life-saving health uh, uh, services are available. They might not go to the uh, uh, get their vaccines, get their health care, because they've been misled into thinking that it's part of some conspiracy theory the Russians have invented. So this isn't just uh, dangerous uh, for U.S.-Russia relations. Russia's intelligence services, by doing this, they are showing they don't care about African lives because they are deterring Africans from getting urgently needed health care that everyone knows in Africa has saved lives. And instead, they're making up stories about biological weapons testing and conspiracy theories that they've used in Ukraine and elsewhere. Um, and that's what's such a tragedy about this. It's not just the foreign policy consequences, but it's the, the lives and health and welfare of individual men, women, and children in Africa are being put at risk by the Russians. Mr. Rubin, do we have names or organizations of Russia's recruits in Africa, and which countries are they operating from? Well, we do know that uh, a man named Artem Kareev is the leader of the African uh, initiative. Uh, he's called the chief editor. Uh, this is a guy who you know, previously worked in Latvia, helping a member of parliament uh, avoid uh, you know, getting kicked out of the country and stuff like that. You can imagine what his real job is. And what he's doing is hiring local individuals, some of whom come from the Prigozhin enterprise, which has brought such chaos to West Africa and such damage to the people of Africa. And they're collecting these nefarious characters to try to uh, persuade Africans to not get needed health care. Think of how monstrous a disinformation campaign this is. This isn't just one of these war and peace things between the United States and Russia. This is something that's costing uh, lives for Africans. And I certainly hope that everyone who make, is made aware of this, what we're doing this for is we're trying to inoculate the journalists, the governments, the people of Africa to uh, a Russian disinformation campaign that would prevent people from getting their needed medical service. That was James Rubin, the Special Envoy and Coordinator for the U.S. Department of State's Global Engagement Center. He was speaking to my colleague Esther Githui Ewart on Africa 54 Television News Show. The U.S. Institute of Peace says China is Africa's largest two-way trading partner, hitting $254 billion in 2021, exceeding U.S.-Africa trade by a factor of four. China is the largest provider of foreign direct investment, supporting hundreds of thousands of African jobs, roughly double U.S. foreign direct investment. Paul Nantulia, a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, discussed with viewers senior analyst Mohamed El Shinawi what the United States could do to bolster ties on the continent. If you look at it from an African perspective and from the perspective of African agency, the general feeling is that the increasing strategic competition between the United States and China is an opportunity for African countries to diversify their international partnerships 
to play China off the U.S. and the U.S. off China when opportunity presents itself and to increase Africa's diplomatic options. It's not looked at a zero-sum game. So when you look at it from a Beijing perspective, and when you look at it from a Washington perspective, it looks like it's a zero-sum game. But from the African perspective, it's not looked like it's not looked at in that way at all. And secondly, uh, African countries also firmly reject the idea that they should be pushed to choose sides or to be in a U.S. orbit, an American orbit, or a Chinese orbit. Culturally speaking, from a strategic perspective, African countries have always rejected that. And when African governments look at this, they say, you know, the options are, are increasing. You know, they're able to to, to assert much more agency than, than they would otherwise assert in a unipolar kind of arrangement. But getting to the heart of your question, I think there are quite a number of things that one needs to bear in mind. The first is that uh, the U.S. does have very strong relationships with African countries and has been involved in Africa for a very, very long time. The second element is there's a sense that the U.S. has an opportunity to do a lot more given it, its niche capabilities and its position on the African continent. One area, Mohammed, is education. U.S. education has always been popular. You know, it has always been very popular for African students and professionals to seek education abroad. However, when you look at United States, last year, coming to the United States, the visa rejection rate for sub-Saharan African countries is 74%. That is a statistic of the U.S. government itself, 74%. The visa rejection rates on the Chinese side are about 6%. So one can see that there's a lot less, the barriers to entry into the People's Republic of China are way lower than they are in the United States. And yet United States education is still very much appreciated and it is seen as offering better value for money. So I think these are some of the things the United States can do uh, to become more competitive uh, on the African continent. This is a young continent. It is a continent uh, that has a median age of 18 years. And uh, when you have that kind of demographic, uh, the kind of demands that, that are on the table, for things like education, things like democracy, things like technology. There's a huge demand uh, for technology, for advanced technology. There's a huge demand for startups. I mean, Africa is a huge market for startups. So these are areas that the U.S. can uh, can actually leverage its position on the African continent, given that historically the U.S. has always been seen as one country that that really offers a lot of value for money when it comes to when it comes to things like this. President Biden promised to visit Africa, but he didn't. However, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and the U.S. Ambassador to the UN just toured some African countries. How do you compare the diplomatic efforts of the US in Africa to that of China? Mohammed, that's a great question. Let's look at it from a Chinese perspective. For the past 32 years, every Chinese foreign minister at the beginning of every year, every January, makes his or her inaugural foreign policy visit to the African continent. The Chinese foreign minister visits five to six African countries every January as the first item on China's diplomatic calendar. That means, Mohammed, that in every tenure of a foreign of a Chinese foreign minister, which is ten years, an incumbent foreign minister will make no less than fifty visits to Africa. That is the highest rate of African visits than any other country in the world, leave alone the United States. It's not just an event. It's not just symbolism. It is part of the architecture of the Chinese government. This is the the, the ways that the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs is organized. The U.S.-Africa summit has met only twice, in 2014 and recently. So I think these are some lessons, Mohammed, that show that uh, the institutional architecture is much more important than individual visits by secretaries of state or presidents. 
And I think these are some lessons that the United States can learn from China. It's not that the United States should copy and paste what China is doing, but I think that there are lessons that might be learned from China in terms of institutionalizing the cooperation and engagement with different African countries. That was Paul Nantulia, a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington. He was speaking with my colleague Mohamed El Shinawi. You are listening to Africa News Tonight. I'm Peter Cote in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see viewerafrica.com. There you will find all your favorite viewer radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out viewernews.com. Tuareg separatists in northern Mali are accusing the army and Russian paramilitary troops of having killed seven Chadian and Nigerian civilians in drone strikes near the Algerian border. The Malian army did not respond to requests for comments from French news agency AFP about the allegations, which were in a statement from the Permanent Strategic Framework, an alliance of predominantly Tuareg rebel groups. The alliance wrote that Wagner and the Malian armed forces carried out drone strikes on a fuel sales outlet in Talahandag. The village is a crossroad in the vast desert of Mali's far north, close to the border with Algeria and Niger. The alliance says it condemns, in its words, these repeated acts of terrorism by the Bamako junta. The government has not responded to these allegations. The unemployment rate in the Swatini, a small landlocked country, stayed at just over 24% in 2022, according to the World Bank. Njaboli Son Kampalala, a recent graduate, says young people are feeling the negative impact of the poor job market. Journalist Nukukanya Musi spoke with Nkampalala, who shares the challenges she faces and how she has managed to overcome the odds. Um, and I'm from Lavomesa, from a place called Mbutu. I am from a family of nine. I have six brothers and two sisters, and then I'm the third sister. I've been raised by my father and my siblings. And then I did my grade 10, grade 11. That is where I got pregnant. I am a mother of one and my son is nine years old, so I got pregnant when I was at school, but I was able to continue with my studies. The reason I chose social work is because when I was growing up, I was exposed to up to abuse, like I was staying with different stepmothers, um, so they were abusing me physically and emotionally. So I didn't want like other kids to be abused, so I, I, like, I took the initiative that I wanted to work way I'll be able to protect other children. Third year, uh, it was a bit challenging because uh, we had a period where the government wasn't giving us allowances and uh, it was tough for me to be able to cope again. So I then sat down and thought of a way that would help me to make money. So I then started to have a business idea and they the cleaning and washing business. And that's how everything started. Monthly, I make I make to about two thousand, which which is enough for me, like to be able to pay my rent, to be able to buy food. Even though sometimes it, it is challenging because I have a son and I'm a single mother, like it depends mostly on me. So sometimes I have to cut that money and send it to him so that they can able they can be able to buy whatever that he needs at that moment. 
That was the voice of Njobolisu Nkampalala talking about her struggle finding a job in Iswatini. She was speaking with journalist Nukukanya Musi. All week, we've been highlighting the experiences of young graduates in African countries struggling to find jobs. For more on the topic, check out viewafrica.com. A new Ugandan Human Rights Commission report says the nation's police continue to work and live in miserable conditions. The report says such conditions can lead to gross human rights violations carried out by police officers. Reporter Mugome Davis Rakarinji has more from the capital, Kampala. The report released in Alephe Bali says men and women in the Uganda police force work in deplorable conditions which influence their behavior at work. According to the report, at least 49% of the officers interviewed since they've had to work without equipment such as vehicles, protective gear, batons, or even communication equipment. Maria Mwangadia is the chairperson of the Ghana Human Rights Commission, which conducted the survey. Police personnel improvise a lot by using their own money or borrowing, depending on the support and goodwill of well-wishers, or even asking clients or suspects or their relatives to photocopy police forms before they are rendered services. At times, they have to share guns, ask complainants to transport officers to carry accident victims, use ropes in lieu of handcuffs, work with suspects to court in the absence of vehicles, and use observation to detect crime in lieu of required gadgets, among others. The report also shows that police officers receive poor pay with the lowest ranking officers getting 400,000 Uganda shillings or about $100 a month. Wangadia says in two quotes, officers are giving more than they are receiving, unquote. She approaches the police for doing what she calls an amazing job in the prevailing conditions. It is amazing how in their given conditions, they can still manage to provide any service. Most personnel have some office space but which is largely insufficient, in poor condition, and indecent. Most police stations and posts lack designated space for fulfilling particular functions. Uh, imagine a situation where you have to interview a suspect or a witness in the presence of others. The report shows that only 29% of police personnel interviewed live in decent housing, while others live in dilapidated makeshift structures. Speaking at the report's launch, Erasmus Torhuka, Uganda Police Director of Legal Services and Human Rights, acknowledges the issues and says the police force is not providing best service to officers or to the public. Since work is an intrinsic part of society and our everyday lives, it is therefore true that good working conditions largely contribute to the well-being of the personnel in police and ultimately determines the quality of the policing services that we offer. Over the years, Uganda Police Force has been listed as the top violator of human rights in the country. Malone Agaba, who heads anti-corruption coalition of Uganda, says despite the challenges, the police should act professionally and respect human rights. 
We expect police really to be the number one protector of human rights, not the leading violator as it has been. So uh, poor facilitation, poor housing shouldn't be used really as an excuse. But also secondly, we know that uh, resources have been appropriated to police uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the increasing budgets that that is being appropriated each and every year, they have uh, been telling us that they are building better housing for police, but we're not seeing the housing. The report recommends the government increase funding to the police, fund new accommodations, police cells, and equipment. For VOA News, I am Mugume, the Visrokarinjini Kampala, Uganda. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at viewafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Vandy, and our engineer, Indugu Saida Hamdoun, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.